0: this slate podcast is brought to you by bing.com the search engine that helps you make everyday decisions with the help of your friends now what your friends like on facebook is in your search results on bing
1: Hello and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club for Monday, June 27th. I'm Hannah Rosen, double X editor at Slate. I'm joined here in the Washington studio with the lovely Margaret Talbot from The New Yorker. Hi, Margaret. Hi, Hannah. And in our New Haven studio, I don't know if it's our New Haven studio, (laughs) in the New Haven studio, we have the lovely Emily Bazelon, who's Slate's legal editor and also double X editor. Hi, Emily. Hello. Today we will be discussing Caleb's Crossing, which is the fourth novel of Geraldine Brooks, who's a Pulitzer Prize winner. It takes place in the 17th century, the 1660s to be more exact. And it's about a Native American who is called Caleb in the novel. That's not his original name. And mostly it's about his relationship with a young missionary's daughter. And not relationship in the way that you think, although we'll discuss that because I'm very curious about that, uh, why exactly they don't have a relationship, which is intimated throughout the novel or but never actually happens. at least some sex. At least some sex, something, something. You, you, were, you were waiting for that, huh, Emily? <laughs> it's kind of. Yeah. I was waiting for the bodice ripping moment, which came later and with a different person. This not, is a different kind of book. <laughs> not with there that no barely savage. any bodice
0: ripping. Don't oversell the sex content. Come on. on the there, was that, Although, there was
1: sort of a heavy kiss, you know?
0: Yeah, that's not bodice ripping. It's
1: not bodice ripping. That's true. No bodices no were bodices ripped. No bodices were ripped in the making <laughs> of this book. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so um, we are getting a little ahead of ourselves here, ladies, with the bodice... Bodices. It's warm here in Washington. I don't know how it is in New Haven. I
0: would like to rip raining, my bodice off. Really raining. Here, oh, really? Bummer. Yes.
1: Okay, let's begin with our heroine. That's where I'd like to begin. The book is narrated by her. It's essentially her journal, really, is what it is. It's written as her journal. And her name is Bethia or Bethia? What do you guys think?
2: I'm going, going with Bethia. Bethia. Oh, really? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's pick. Yes. Okay, how about Bethia then? I'll see. Bethy, right? Bethia. We'll
1: go with Bethia. Bethia. B okay. e t h i a. It's easier H-I-A. to say Bethia. Okay. okay. Bethia Mayfield. So one of the questions I tried to answer for myself is what kind of heroine is Bethia Mayfield? But maybe I'll throw it to you, Emily, just to set the scene a little bit. Sort of where do we meet her? She's on the island of Martha's Vineyard. Just give us a little sense of what happens in this idyllic playland of her preteen years. She's just before she's about to turn fifteen when the novel opens.
0: The island is idyllic in the sense that she loves its wilderness and. Its sense of nature, but it is full of hardship for her. The book starts out with the death of her mother, and then Bethiad has very little power over her own life. And I think that Geraldine Brooks is devoted to the idea of having a heroine who doesn't have the ability to really make her own way very much and is incredibly constrained by her circumstances. And I felt like Brooks was painstaking about being true to that, what I think would be historically accurate. And that's both a strength of the book. And then I think it also is frustrating in some ways. But I wonder if you agreed about that, either of you.
2: It reminded me of a young adult book in a way. I mean, this is a book that I could imagine giving my you know, tween daughter to read, actually? That's so
0: funny, Margaret. I gave it to my 11-year-old because he was studying King Philip's War, which is one of Yeah, the- right. Did he like it? I couldn't get him to get past the first page. I mean, I didn't try that hard. <laughs> right, but, um, right. But I had the same instinct. So well, anyway, and it's sorry. partly
2: because she is one of those classic girl heroines who, as you say, is constrained by her circumstances, but is somebody who is intellectually curious and more daring than other girls and women around her. I mean, she's like, you know, Caddy Woodlawn or, you know, Jane Eyre or there's a recent wonderful tween children's book called The Calp- Evolution yeah. of Calpurnia California Tate. Yeah, yeah she's Oh, very I Calpurnia love that book Tate. so yeah. much. Yeah, isn't
0: that great? Yeah. Um, and She thirsts for learning in the same way. Right, right. Yes. she
2: thirsts for learning. You know, she is our kind of ambassador to the past as a foreign country because she's the person who we can kind of identify with in a well, way that's a familiar maybe even overly familiar type. I mean, we are seldom in the head in these kind of historical novels of somebody who buys into, you know, in this case, the Puritan ideology completely or whatever the reigning sort of ideas
1: are about gender. You know, it's always a rebel, right? right? Why a young adult heroine as opposed to, say, a Jane Austen heroine who's constrained to not, in this case, by 19th century social mores, but by her Calvinist Puritanism, basically by her father's religion and, you know, by the sort of pioneer spirit and what it did and didn't allow women to do. What Well, I guess
2: I found her to be uh, a less angry and passionate um, kind of rebel than, let's say, Jane Eyre, for Mm -hmm. example. She is intellectually curious. She does try and learn on the sly in various ways that are forbidden to her. She does hang out with this and become friends with, secretly, this young Indian boy who becomes another major character in the book, Caleb. But she's also fairly dutiful, right? I mean, she, in terms of her relationship with her family and so on. So I guess she's a pretty wholesome character, right? Right. I mean, so I guess I feel like it makes it, you know, suitable for younger readers in a way that sometimes you might wonder a little bit with some other kinds of heroines of this kind. It's
1: a little tame. Mm. Right. It is a little tame. I thought it was a a conscious choice on Geraldine Brooks's part because there is – sort of one thing that's very Austenian Austenian, Uh (laughs) about it is that there are a series of suitors, which we'll talk about later. And there's sort of her decisions to reject the suitors. But it seemed to me that she was trying very hard not to make the sexual awakening and the series of suitors central to Bethia's identity. In other words, she wanted her intellectual pursuits and essentially a chaste friendship and her religious constraints, which she believed in, to be central to her identity and to be something that she really allied herself with so that she did not become yet another one of these heroines who was forever making decisions in relation to men and in relation to her marital Yeah. Future. And I was glad that
2: the relationship
1: with Caleb didn't become
2: sexual just because, you know, that would have really strained belief. Credulity. Yeah. I mean, she's very historically meticulous. And I think, you know, that would have taken us beyond... The realm of plausibility.
0: And yet there's a way in which the intellectual pursuits, while they seem so crucial in course through most of the book, and then they get dropped sort of later in her life. I think for me, this book was more compelling as I was going along. And then it, it didn't lead quite where I thought it was going to or where I wanted it to. But I don't mean for us to get ahead. That's of true strokes. for me, too. But let's slow down
1: a little bit and talk about the season of tragedy. So essentially, the way that this novel is set up is that Bethia, genuinely believes that she has committed a sin. Now, it's a sin of religion. It's not a sexual sin that essentially she was drawn in by the native religion. She has a moment of ecstasy when she hears a certain music around a ritual, ritual essentially a drum ritual that she's spying secretly. on mm-hmm. and watching. And then she has another moment where she takes a kind of potion, a sort of toxic potion that a lot of the young Indian men Some make.
0: ecstasy. It's essentially <laughs> right.
1: something like ecstasy that the Native American men, it's part of a rite of passage for them and she she finds some and it's it's sort of semi poisonous and she finds some in a gourd and she tastes it and she feels that this betrayal of her own christianity and particularly her father's efforts at evangelizing have brought tragedy upon her house and then there are a series of tragedies that follow in which Nearly everyone dies. I mean, first her twin brother is dispatched with fairly early in the novel. Uh, her mother dies, as Emily mentions. Her mother dies in childbirth, and the child that she's been taken care of, who's named Solace, and that was very heartbreaking. Yeah. Oh. She dies in the way that children always die in such novels, which is that she stumbles into and a in shallow. In reality, pool.
0: I mean, and in, in Alexandra Jacobs' book about uh, Africa, exactly.
1: I uh, remember Africa. that book. That's exactly mm. what happens: is she stumbles into a narrow pool. I've never forgotten yeah. that. Oh, then her father dies in a shipwreck. Right. And then, you know, we won't talk about the very end of the novel in which everybody's essentially dead.
0: Yes, we will. But
1: not till, late. not, not, till not not later. Till later. <laughs> but so what did you guys think of that framework? I mean, this idea that she's essentially set up this idea that, you know, God's wrath is upon her and then God's wrath is upon her. Sort of what is Geraldine Brooks trying to say with that construct? What does that say about our heroine or about what we're supposed to believe?
2: Well, I mean, first of all, those kind of tragedies were unbelievably common in, you know, early America. I mean, people and especially the child mortality rate was very high. I mean, even though Puritans were actually a little hardier than people left behind in England and lived longer than people left behind in England, you know, still that was the nature of life. So I think, you know, just there was this questing one imagines all the time to try and explain this. And that's Mm -hmm. partly what motivates, you know, religious belief. And for the Indians, there are comparable spiritual beliefs that she talks about a way to make sense of the kind of sudden intrusion of death and tragedy and often gruesome tragedy into the lives of these people. So, I mean, I think partly she's painting a picture of the way people grappled emotionally with what seemed like insurmountable and uncontrollable,
1: you know, threats of disease and uh, mortality. How convinced were you by her grappling with her own faith? In other words, she doesn't really ever seem to be on the verge or lose her faith or that kind of sharp and rebellious. On the other hand, she does have these frustrating conversations with Caleb, which she essentially runs away from, you know, where they talk about Satan or the powers of Satan or where they talk about, you know, why evil happens in a way which Caleb finds evil kind of part of the natural world. And she sort of struggles to understand it.
0: Right. There's this key conversation they have exactly halfway through the book where she is having to make a decision about whether to indenture herself as a servant to the schoolmaster in Cambridge who is going to take her brother. And her grandfather wants her to do this indenturing, even though it's clearly beneath her social status. And Caleb is opposed to this idea because he sees it as her having to sell herself. And they meet up on the beach. One of the um, nicest things about this book is that Bethia gets to gallop off on her horse named Speckle into the <laughs> right. wilds. That's oh, a very nice young, young adult. A very yeah. girl on her horse and very satisfying. Though. Yes, <laughs> totally. So, and they're on this, you know, windswept shore, and they're having this argument. You can kind of imagine the wind hurling away their words, and they're and they're talking about religion and why Caleb is converting or at least learning all about Christianity. And whether when he went off for his teenage coming of age ritual in his tribe, he had a kind of ecstatic experience and saw the serpent, which is this like sign of becoming, um, and I don't know how to pronounce this word, but Pawal, the um, healer, kind of medicine man, which is what his uncle is. And what I took from this conversation was I was actually much more interested in Caleb's thinking than in Bethia's because Caleb is this liminal character. We have to make sense of why he would have decided to educate himself among the Christians and gone to Harvard, and Geraldine Brooks is working from a real person here. The front piece of the book is this letter that a real person named Caleb with a super long yeah try um, the last American name. last go name ahead, go, go ahead try no. it <laughs> Ch- Ch- maybe I don't I know Eli like my son and I had a long back and forth about how you would pronounce that name and we did not resolve it Chiche so so of. this is what.
1: Nothing is it such, <laughs> so juvenile. It really doesn't deserve to be repeated. I Go see ahead.
0: good jokes being yes. made over there. Anyway, so this is the kind of real core of the book, and I think it's a totally fascinating question. And I thought that Brooks's the words she gives Caleb to explain were really interesting. He's talking about how his uncle, this Powel, who he sees as very powerful, has had a vision that the white and his Christians- name is Emily. Oh, <laughs> to, really?
1: to, Thank you. To, to call Mac okay. to say what pages you're on. You're We're in the sort on of 140s, like page right? 146,
0: 147. Yes, I here. have a lot to say about these pages, but go ahead. Oh, yes. oh, good. So in any case, Caleb is explaining that his uncle has had a vision that the Christian settlers are going to come and take over. And he compares them to grains of sand and says, you know, each one is perfectly harmless, but put them all together and you're just going to pour over us. Um, You will pour across this land and we will be smothered, your stone walls, your dead trees, the hooves of your strange beasts trampling the clam beds. My uncle sees these things here and now, and in his trance he sees that worse is coming." And so this is Caleb's rationale, that he has to learn whatever he can about the Christian God to find favor for his people in front of the Christian God. So did
2: you interpret that, and that's a very good summation of it, but did you interpret that as that what he was doing was making sort of a strategic decision to ally himself with the inevitable power rather than, you know, the fact that he had some sort of spiritual conversion.
0: I thought it was a mix, that he was open to this other god who he saw as powerful, but that what he's really saying to Bethia, and this is on page 147, is, um, a man must take power where he finds it. If I find it in your books, I will take it. If I find it in visions brought to me by my familiar, then I will take that, too. It is what the times demand of me. And I thought that was a really evocative attempt to get inside the mind of this young Native American man who goes to Harvard. Which It is. And it was so subtle. crazy. And,
1: but is he right. angry there? I mean, there's a great part in the novel when he is moving from his Native American garb into his you know, colonial garb, I guess. And uh, she. Describes him, Bethia, that is, as 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 looking like someone who's who had fires not extinguished but banked or something like that, which was a great phrase and you know implied anger beneath the surface or anger sort of waiting to explode or maybe it didn't. I couldn't quite tell. I couldn't quite tell if to his uncle, who's the sort of competitor here, he's the spiritual competitor to Bethia's father. You know, is he fading into the distance here? I mean, are you supposed to get the impression that this is the losing fight? I mean, you know, here's a man with a lot of fire in him. On the other hand, how can you fight the grains of sand on the beach? I mean, are we meant to believe that this is a bit of fatalism on his part or what? I think we're meant to believe, I mean, what we know
2: to happen, right, which was, you know, bluntly, the white men win, right? I mean, so, in fact, there is a sadness that hovers over this whole book, which has to do with what the real story was that uh, Geraldine Brooks is, is working with, because the real story is, and this is kind of fascinating, that at the very beginning of Harvard, when it was, you know, a decade or two old, Harvard University, they wanted to educate Indians, and they brought Indians in and what they called an Indian college. And he was not the only one, I think, maybe was the only one to graduate. Mm-hmm. But there were, I don't know, half a dozen or something. And, you know, it was also the aim was to convert them and, you know, to bring them over to the colonial side, if you will. But also there was this belief that they were educable and capable of studying, you know, Greek and Latin and Hebrew and metaphysics, as well as religion. So there was this hope about that, one imagines. And, you know, then actually because of this um, sort of outbreak of hostilities between the settlers and the Indians soon thereafter in what was called King Philip's War, they sort of canceled this program and that was the end of it. You know, no Native Americans went to Harvard for a long time after that. This is sort of a microcosm of this kind of early hope that there would be more cooperation and more um, exchange of ideas between um, Native Americans and the settlers and, you know, obviously that is not what happened. So, you know, in that sense, it's this seed of something that, you know, came to pass
1: in the future that is tragic. Right. It's a moment. It's a sort of moment and it's a sort of doomed cooperation basically. It's a sort of tense nonetheless. It's a tense cooperation and then it's ultimately doomed.
0: In the moment though, I think one thing that's interesting is Caleb has the same thirst for learning that Bethia has. And so you have this feeling that even though he has all kinds of reasons to be suspicious of these Calvinists, He also is drinking in Greek and Latin and Mm -hmm. Hebrew. There's this way in which book learning um, becomes part of his life that it wouldn't have otherwise and that he is intellectually suited to that. So now let's pause for a word
1: from our sponsor. The audiobook club this month is being sponsored by Bing.com, which is especially exciting for me because I've just started experimenting with Bing even before we were sponsored by them. They have this excellent uh, special feature in their shopping section which allows you to look up books from a range of different sellers and you can compare prices. So some of these young adult novels that Margaret and Emily have been talking about, it even uploads user reviews, including reviews from Amazon, and helps you make the best decisions. And the timing is perfect since it's summertime and we're all looking for summer books. We can also do this with music and movies and all sorts of things. You can find Geraldine Brooks's earlier books that Emily was talking about. Now, the coolest feature in Bing, uh, which is better than other search engines, is called a social search feature. So you can right on your homepage, choose to see what your Facebook friends' likes are. And so if I want to know what summer books Emily and Margaret are reading or what movies they're seeing, it will show up right on my Bing homepage and help me make decisions. So it's all pretty cool and pretty perfect for the summer. Now, let's get back to page 146 in the book. I think one of the challenges of writing a book like this is how you handle the noble savage trope. So for me, in the pages that you mentioned, 146, 147, I was feeling the heavy breathing. Like, that was some of my least favorite writing about the noble savage trope. I was really, you know, that's when I was seeing the TV mini-drama unfolding, you know, remember what it means, Bethia, I taught you long since healer, I whispered, just so. This is my intention to use this power to heal the sickness that beset my people. You know, there's another point later in the novel where when they're discussing the role of women, which Bethia does now and again, uh, he mentioned how, you know, the the sort of noble life of a squaw, you know, how the squaw has this sort of perfect idyllic life where she can take as many men as she wants and she's not tied to one man. I mean, the squaw is kind of (laughs) future 1970s. He
0: he says that the squaw doesn't become a non-entity legally. And then Bethia says, but, you know, men can take more than one wife. Right. She argues back. She argues back. Yeah.
1: That's true. Yeah. That's I reasonable. think it's
0: always just on the edge. I mean, I
2: don't envy her the task of trying right. to avoid that right. trope that you're talking about. And I think mostly, partly because she doesn't let him speak all that much. You right. know, we, especially in the latter <laughs> half of the book, we don't hear from him that much. And, you know, I think that's so difficult i mean you know some model of this guy existed right i mean he was you know he but what can we really know about right. what his mind was like or so i mean the act of imagination that will recreate somebody like this, but also not fall into those stereotypes. Boy, that's that's, that's hard to really off. really hard. Yeah. And most
1: of the time, she pulled it off. There were just moments mm-hmm. when you felt it creaking. Now we haven't discussed my favorite character. I, I thought really successful character is Bethia's brother, mm-hmm. Makepeace, um, who is resentful. He is the older brother. He is left in charge of Bethia when her father gets killed in the shipwreck, and he is the failing scholar. Basically, he's somebody- oh man,
0: did I want a nice you know. <laughs> disability evaluation <laughs> He would have been so much better off in an era in which people knew how to treat right. dyslexia. Clearly, right. he was
1: like dyslexic or something was going on there because, you know, he would sit there day after day trying not so valiantly. I mean, he wasn't the nicest guy to begin with, but trying very hard to study and watching what he would call these savages outpace him every time. Uh, there were two of them. Not there to was, mention his sister. Not to mention his sister. I mean, so time after time, he was just full of resentment against, you know, the life that he was expected to lead and was clearly failing at and failing worse than people who, you know, he should be outpacing, namely a woman and two savages. And so he's the one in whose mouth we get the sexual attention because he's accusing Bethia of being, you know, attracted to Caleb what did you guys think of Makepeace? Did you like those moments as much as I did? There was sort of the crackle in the novel for me. It was whenever Makepeace came around.
0: Yeah, that seemed like a plausible family tension. I agree. And I liked how Brooks gave him some redeemed moments yes. too, in mm-hmm. which, you know, he believes Bethia when she is trying to convince him that this young Indian girl named Anne, who comes into the um, master schoolmaster's house in Cambridge, and gets pregnant and miscarries and Bethia thinks that the father of the child is from the house of the powerful governor of the colony and no one wants to believe her and make peace does believe her. And so you had this feeling that even though there was all this tension between them, he wasn't a totally evil character. And also that he's
2: sincerely religious. He's not hypocritical. He's a sincere character. Right. Right. right.
0: Now, all that said, I mean, I agree with you about the crackle, Hannah, and I thought it particularly came up in this moment. And now I'm on page in the hundred and seventies where Makepeace decides that Bethia should accept the suitor who is the farmer back on the island. Noah Mary. Mm -hmm. Yes. He is going to make this choice for her and she curses him. She says, God damn, you make peace. And this turns out to be not just, you know, a bad idea, a bad (laughs) choice of words or even a sin, but something that she could actually be prosecuted in court for and really causes her all kinds of trouble. And I thought that was super interesting.
1: Just to explain why this happened, this is because they're having this confrontation and make peace says to her. He stared at me, frowning, his face darkened. This is on page 174. It is your unlawful affection for that half-tamed salvage that brings this about, is it not? There's no cause otherwise for you to have such a revulsion to so suitable an alliance as Mary, referring to Noah Mary. And that's when she says, God damn, you make peace. That's as close as we get to a reality TV but, moment. right? <laughs> but, no, but they're having...
2: Yeah. yeah and, well, I was just going to say, and then she, as a result, is made to get up and basically renounce what she said in front of the congregation. And that's the moment when her other suitor, who actually does become her husband— sort of falls for her because she's so... He finds her so articulate. I love that. I love a, mean, a guy who loves cool. you for that reason. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but along
0: the way, she has to wear um, a paper print- pinned to her breast that include the words, I will keep my mouth with a bridle. And also, make peace whips her. And I this whole idea of the silence of women is a real note that Brooks hits. She starts with it in the very beginning because Bethia says of her mother that her mother rarely spoke outside of the house. And Bethia wrestles with her own impulse to speak. But after this whipping an episode in front of the congregation, she decides that she is going to stop talking and she actually stops eating, too. And you have this really, at least for me, sad moment of self-abnegation of this girl who has learned that there is no safe way to be an outspoken woman in her community. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Although this gets
1: resolved in her courtship with Samuel, the [3] son of the man who runs the house where she is working. Is that where you felt it got sort of young adulty? I mean, essentially what happens is he's looking for an intellectual woman, but I think he doesn't quite realize what that means. You know, he's saying about his own mother, you know, she wasn't a good enough intellectual sparring partner for my father. And I saw that throughout my life. And he realizes that Bethia would make an intellectual sparring partner. I'm not finding exactly, I'll find it in a minute, what he says, but it's something like he didn't realize that, you know, this kind of fire... Well, I'm not going to find what it was, but he did the didn't, whole package. Yeah, he didn't yeah, realize the whole package. Exactly. He didn't tricky. realize it came with her being so defiant, right. both about this midwife question and, you know, other things in her life. So then she says, fine, you mm-hmm. like there's a moment when she just walks out and says, fine, I don't want to marry you. Forget it, you know, um, and basically gives him six months to get used to her as she is. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you guys find that a convincing courtship?
2: Well, I don't know how historically convincing it is. I don't know, you know, about that aspect of it. I'll I'll take Brooks's word for it. Yeah, I mean, I found it believable that he would be somebody who was both attracted to a woman with a mind more kind of educated and interesting than his own mother's had been. And he saw his father's frustration with that. And also that, you know, yeah, that that had some some downsides in the Puritan culture,
0: obviously. Isn't this where the book starts to sag a little bit? I'm having trouble putting my finger on exactly why I didn't I wasn't, you know, put off by Samuel's character in particular. And yet, it was almost as if the roiling young adult, you know, Bildungsroman tensions of the book get, they just kind of fade away without real resolution.
2: I feel like we're seeing their marriage then from the outside, even though it's actually supposed to be her, the last kind of you know, chronicling of her marriage is supposed to be her sort of last diary entries as she's a dying old woman. But somehow... Wait, what feel... do you guys mean? You mean you didn't get a sense of their own relationship
1: Not or how so, it No, I didn't. No, enough? I sort no. of feel like yeah. it. We they, there was the courtship, there was the tension in the courtship that I... Strong-minded. Is did, I didn't realize strong-minded also meant headstrong. Sorry. I there you go. That's a good line. Yes. Um,
2: yeah, which, you know, is wonderfully sort of Austin like and right, young right. adult like and all those, you know, uh, sort of classic trope like. But then I don't know. I you know, but that of course happens in Austin too. We never actually see the marriages, we just see the
0: resolution. Right. <laughs> the Maybe that's so. the problem is it's just harder to make that epoch in in a in the life of a heroine like this yes. as riveting. Um, right. But I did I did feel a little bit like the book had lost its momentum. Yeah, I agree with you. Well, it's
1: interesting. It was clear, like I said before throughout, that she's not intentionally putting aside the romance. I mean, I think sort of, you know, six months from now when I think about this book, most vivid to me, I think, is going to be the relationship between Caleb and Bethia in the very beginning of the novel. That sort of Adam and Eve, you know, reverse Pocahontas, that kind of idyllic Mm -hmm. island of two people meeting, a male-female friendship, which was probably fairly impossible in those days, you know, and yet they managed to out this friendship. And maybe she intentionally wants that to be much more vivid than a marriage. Well, know, and then the other thing kiss. is she, she does remain true
2: to the historical background or historical roots of this. And the fact is, sadly, that both Caleb and the other Indian boy, Joel. Wampanoag boy, who she writes about, both died shortly after Right, which is a problem,
0: a narrative problem, even if it's an historical truth, right?
2: So he crosses over... And then there he is, and... Right. Way. And
0: Caleb dies of, he gets sick. It's Consumption, like, which yes, apparently I he did right. a
2: year after he graduated. So,
0: Right. And so you have the sense of this life cut short and of tragedy, but it doesn't make for a whole lot of narrative tension somehow. It kind of turns the book in a different way.
1: Well, I mean, it's interesting. This book is sold as a book about a Native American man and his crossing, essentially, from one world to the other world. And there's a moment at the end when she is tending to him and she's trying to tend to him in a way which is true to him. So to give him some whisperings from his uncle and from his own native culture and also Christian blessing at the same time. And she says out loud, you know, you have done it and it's cost you everything, you know, and that's essentially the theme of the novel and how the novel is sold. And I'm wondering to myself, do you think that the novel actually – narrated that sufficiently, this notion of somebody crossing from one world to the other and, and being damaged by that and crossing. being damaged by that, you know, because, you know, I was surprised, you know, four chapters into this, that this was a novel about a woman, mm-hmm. you know, a, a sort of colonial woman. And that it's not that Caleb was incidental to the novel, but it did seem to me that that Geraldine Brooks was her heart was with Bethia. Right. It's of. really yes. her and story. Yeah, She's right. witnessing this.
2: And we don't you know, we aren't in his uh, internal space very much after, well, you know, really after that conversation that we were talking about in the middle of the book. Once he's at Harvard, she's seeing him from a distance. And, you know, she notices he's become thin and haggard because he's not being fed well, and he's studying so hard. And
1: yeah, like I expected (laughs) sort of throwdowns with the frat boys, you know, something, you know, sort of a lot more incidents. You got it through Anne she had clearly been raped, although that came to fruition only insofar as it affected Bethia and her relationship with the midwife and her own courtship and marriage. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't as right. much kind of clashing with the sort of Dudleys of the. I mean, there's this character named Dudley who comes in the picture who's clearly, you know, the son of a governor or something. And he is disrespectful to Bethia, um, but it's not so clear uh, his relationship towards the, you know, salvages. And the only person who does give hostility and resentment is Makepeace, but he's got some personal reason and animus there. So you don't, she doesn't get so deep into the societal right. and tension. I,
2: you know, she, of course, is a journalist. All her novels are historical novels. I think they're pretty, obviously, they're works of imagination, but they're also pretty well grounded. And, you know, apparently she did go and read anything that anyone who would have been at Harvard at that time, including this guy, Dudley, wrote to see if any of them mentioned the Indian students because you would think that would be a fairly remarkable thing. And none of them did, apparently. And so her conclusion was either that they had blended in so successfully, that they had essentially crossed over so successfully that they weren't remarkable, or that they were sort of socially the opposite in a way. They were so socially isolated that they didn't sort of impinge on the world of these other But don't we want
1: her to play out one or or another of those scenarios? She kind of
2: does a little of both. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: I mean, you want him to fall in love with an English, you know, with a sort of Cambridge Harvard girl, Radcliffe, I don't, I don't the old Radcliffe Harvard girl, whatever. You know,
0: I don't know. I, don't I mean, think I'm trying to think like. such a thing. But I do think I mean, I loved the afterword to this book where she starts picking a fight with some of the historical sources. And you just have this sense of this incredibly conscientious researcher, which mm-hmm. is familiar to me from her previous books. I loved March, which is her Pulitzer Prize winning book in which she imagines the world of. Um, joe march's father so Mm -hmm. that's basically bronson alcott the father of um, joe march and little women a character based on louisa may alcott that's just a wonderful book about the civil war told from this very unexpected perspective Mm -hmm. and then she also has this book called year of wonders about the plague which i read that book in like two days because i got completely gripped by the drama it had both the kind of far away historical Novel aspect and this really compelling narrative. Whereas I felt like this book, it was just a little more tame and careful in its narrative, even though, again, I had this sense of like great grounding in the history. And I kept thinking about A Midwife's Tale, which is one of my favorite mm, books yeah. of history. It's by this Harvard professor named Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. And it's about, you know, how midwives carved out the space for themselves in colonial America and all the medicine that they learned. And there is a little bit of that in Bethia because mm-hmm. she's interested in roots Mid-Rifery. and herbs mm-hmm. and how you use them.
1: You just wanted to say midwifery, I did. Margaret. I did. I so
0: seldom get the opportunity.
1: All right. I will close with the question I always close with. I think you guys have mostly answered this. Would you recommend it? And to whom would you recommend it? Margaret, you first.
2: Yes, I would. And I would recommend it to, you know, teenagers, actually. I mean, I think there's so many kind of, I don't know, you know, uh, grim books for teenagers out there right now. And this is actually, you know, realistic, but very readable, I think, by a younger reader. So
1: I I guess I would. I agree with that. Emily, what do you say?
0: I think that's a great idea. And I would say that if you have not been introduced to Geraldine Brooks before, that I would recommend starting with March and Year of, of Wonders. But I liked this book.
1: Yes, I agree with that. Yeah, me too. Thank you, ladies, for joining me today. Thank you to Abdullah Rufus for engineering this podcast. Next month, in honor of the final Harry Potter movie, we are going to be reading Harry Potter Seven and talking about that. Uh, this is the first time that the Slate Book Club is going to address one of the Harry Potter series, and we will have special guest stars—very special guest stars, namely our children. That's going to be a grand experiment, but we'll give it a try. <laughs> and if
0: it doesn't work, feel free to tell us. Exactly. Feel. Feel free to tell us. Anyway,
1: thank you so much and we hope that you will join us next month. Bye.